0: I think that society is, is more compassionate than our officials and law enforcement lets on or wants to acknowledge. You know, it's, it's about organization, it's about making your views known, it's about telling people that it's not acceptable that we allow animal abuse to go unchecked.
1: That's Executive Director of Animal Justice Canada, Camille Labchuk. This week's guest on Episode 98 of the Unplugged Podcast. Welcome to another inspiring week of the Unplug Podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. And this is the audio space where you will hear powerful conversations with the courageous truth seekers and free thinkers of today's rapidly changing world. My name is Debo Zarko, Warrior of Truth. Cultural revolutionary and passionate lover of life, here to welcome you to your bi weekly dose of authentic expression, truth, critical thought, provoking words, and open hearted inspiration from my paradigm busting headquarters in beautiful coastal British Columbia, Canada. And before I launch into this week's podcast introduction, I want to send a really big thank you to everyone who's supporting this podcast on Patreon and to those of you who have ranked and rated the podcast. I know that the, the audio medium isn't as conducive to immediate support as video is for instance, because, uh, most of us are just moving around, you know, we're out for a run, we're walking our dogs, we're listening in the car. So for those of you who have taken the extra effort to stay put long enough to write a review or pledge a donation to the show, it means that much more to me because it shows me that what I do really matters to you. So a big hefty thank you all around. And this week's show is a deep exploration of the burgeoning new world of animal law. And as old patriarchal systems continue to collapse, it's becoming increasingly evident that the legal systems around the world are designed to protect the perpetrators of the destruction of life in our world. And we only need to look at how frequently those who perpetuate violence and destruction against animals, women, and the earth get off either scot-free or with merely a token slap on their wrist. And repeatedly, we see this pattern play out. And as a matter of fact... A current example happened here in Canada just last week when former Canadian Broadcasting Corporation radio personality Gian Gameshi was acquitted on all charges of sexual assault even after numerous women came forward and spoke out about his ongoing violence and abuse. And this happens regularly. Women's voices are silenced by a patriarchal culture that prefers oppression over truth. And the same can be said for large corporations who dump oil and other toxic substances into the ocean and rivers and streams and destroy our land. And they just get off with a minuscule fine at best. And then they're the animals, the lowest on the totem pole and considered no more than property, meaning no more significant than a toaster or a television or a car. And that's right here. In my beautiful home country of Canada, folks, it's now more normal to see perpetrators of violence liberated than it is to see anything else. But as we all know, listening to this show, normal is anything but natural. Now, that all said, I don't necessarily agree with punishment, however, because in my opinion, Punishment only serves to perpetuate shame and resentment. And inevitably that only drives the wound of separation that much deeper. And personally, I believe an honest, open dialogue that inspires genuine remorse. And that's the only way for those who perpetuate violence to understand the severity of their actions. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the only way that they and everyone involved actually can truly heal and transform from, from crimes of violence and brutality. Now, of course, there's exceptions as in the case of uh, a psychopath, but overall, can you imagine a legal and a judicial system that held a safe space for open dialogue to occur? And that's the way it was done in ancient cultures where relationships and community trumped segregation, dominant power, shame, and isolation. And we've seen it repeatedly throughout history into today. Information and force changes nothing. That is the old paradigm that's imploding. But inspiration and action changes everything. This week's guest inspires all of us with her passion to create groundbreaking and activated change from within an antiquated and old rigid system. And so it takes someone with an immense amount of integrity and courage to immerse themselves into a corrupt system to create change. And this week's conversation is with an amazing truth seeker who is courageously venturing into the dysfunctional abyss to create change from within one of the many systemic boxes that prefers to keep old ways intact. And that box is the legal system. Now the corruption all around us is immense. I think we can all agree on that, especially people who are listening to this show. But as old systems crumble, the absurd uh, desperation to protect these systems becomes increasingly louder. And there are many of us who are creating and inspiring change from outside of the box. And that alone is pretty challenging. But for those working within the systems, Change is that much harder because of how deeply entrenched old paradigms are within the collective human psyche. It's people like this week's guest, Camille Labchuk, who are holding the old systems accountable to truth and to life. Now, Camille is a longtime friend from a time when we both lived in Ottawa. We knew each other long before her days as a lawyer, when she was still in university. uh, And I believe she wasn't even studying law at that point and we participated in various animal rights events and enjoyed dinners at each other's homes. So we got to know each other quite well. And since then, we've met up at the Toronto Vegetarian Festival on numerous occasions. And it's always such a joy to see Camille. She is such a beautiful soul. And since our time in Ottawa, Camille has since moved to the big smoke of Toronto. And not only does she have her law degree, She's also run for political office with Canada's Green Party, and she is now the executive director for Animal Justice, which is Canada's most powerful new legal voice for animals. Now, Camille has worked to, to advance the interests of animals for well over a decade, and as a lawyer, she represents individuals and organizations in animal law cases. She defends animal advocates and seeks out litigation that enhances the interest of animals. And as an advocate, Camille's work includes documenting the commercial seal kill on Canada's East Coast, exposing the horrific cruelty in farming, and campaigns against trophy hunting, circuses, zoos, aquariums, shark finning, puppy mills, and so much more. She's a frequent lecturer and media commentator on animal issues, and you will hear in this week's conversation how absolutely eloquent she is. In other words, Camille Labchuk is a compassionate and passionate force to be reckoned with. Now, many of the conversations on this podcast are with changemakers who are creating a better world outside of the cultural system. Few few of these conversations are with changemakers who are working within the cultural system. But we need it all. So I am really honored to bring you this week's conversation with my inspirational friend, Camille Labchuk. Camille, I am so happy to have you on this show because you and I have known each other for many years and we've witnessed each other's evolution and moved through various stages of activism. And always the thing that has united both of us is a deep connection to animals and the earth and you're now doing really groundbreaking work with animal justice as a lawyer and as their executive director and i you know i really like to i like to start by setting a foundation about you know who you are but we're going to start with what you're doing right now with animal justice and you can explain to listeners what animal justice is, what the mission is, and what you're aiming to achieve through the organization. And then after that, we're going to back up and we're going to get into the soul of Camille <laughs> So, but, So I'm going to start you off a little easier than I start off most other guests.
0: Well, thank you for the easy treatment. I appreciate that. So I am the executive director of Animal Justice, which is a national organization focused on animal law. And we're the only group in Canada that has a legal focus to our activism and to our advocacy, uh, which is important because law is a really powerful tool to effect change for animals. And there's tremendous ground to be gained to secure their legal protections using the law, going to court, lobbying for better legislation, educating people about the law, and exposing the conditions that animals live in. So we were founded in 2008 by some lawyers who care deeply about animal issues, and I was involved uh, not long after the group started as a law student. I uh, summered for one summer at Animal Justice and did some work there, and we've really grown tremendously just in the last 18 months or so. A, a number of us on sort of the core team have been able to devote a lot more time to the group. So we've got lawyers, we've got um you know, there's, there's three or four lawyers who are very deeply involved. Uh, there's people with diverse backgrounds, in, including a former TV host with great expertise in communications. So we've got an amazing team, and there's just so much work to be done that we never have trouble
1: finding a project to work on. So we're really excited about where things are going. Okay, so you've, you've given us a really great overview of what animal justice is all about. And, I mean, the sad reality is that you've got so much work ahead of you like it's a mountain of work that you've got and I I, I'm sure that it's endless and can probably be quite overwhelming so I guess ultimately what I'm I'm curious about is I mean you're in an antiquated patriarchal system that has been around for a long time and is probably very rigid in its ways and and you know you guys all come along and you're you've got this more progressive mindset. And so I'm curious to know what you're hoping to achieve with the organization within a system that is so kind of locked in its ways. That's an important
0: question. Uh, I think it would be helpful in answering it to give kind of a really brief overview of the field of animal law and sort of what that means and what you can accomplish within it. So in animal law, I like to say it's where environmental law was 30 or 40 years ago. It's a field that's just beginning to grow. It's, it's really getting a lot more attention. Um, a lot more law schools are offering animal law classes, and people are discussing these issues all the time. But it hasn't quite uh, hit the big time yet in the same way that environmental litigation eventually did. So you know, animal law, obviously, is the way that the legal system applies to animals that live in society, whether they be our companion animals, whether they be animals in the wild, um, animals that we use for food, animals that we kill for fur, or or ones that we look at for entertainment. So it really is a vast, vast area. Under the law right now, animals are treated not uh, as uh, individuals with their own legal status with rights, but they're treated primarily as property or legal things. They're not considered legal persons. Uh, which would give them the the right to be represented in court to you know have legal interests that we we give protections to and and enforce those interests. So what we're trying to do with animal justice, you know, ultimately we need a legal revolution. The, the end goal is a legal revolution in the way we look at animals and their rights. And we need to ensure that they have legal rights, protections from abuse which which they do have right now. Um, but rights so that they can actually enforce those protections if somebody's violating them. So one of the biggest problems right now is that an animal doesn't necessarily have standing to go to court on his or her own if, if they're being abused. Now, law enforcement agencies can act, but that's different from an animal suing through a litigation guardian or representative to have those rights enforced. So there's this whole question of what rights animals should be given, But in the meantime, there's so much that we can do working within the existing legal paradigm. Um, I touched on law enforcement a minute ago, and that's an area within which we can make huge progress. A lot of the time, the the, the laws that protect animals are pretty clear that we shouldn't be allowed to cause animals distress or suffering. And yet these laws are seldom enforced to the extent that they should be or to the extent that they're capable of being enforced. So we're working to, to enforce those laws. Now let me give you an example because that's a little bit abstract and it's hard to kind of take that down to earth and, and know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Calgary Stampede. So every summer people gather at the Calgary Stampede and it's you know, essentially a spectacle of animal abuse. There's events like calf roping, there's chuck wagon races, horses die almost every year predictably at chuck wagon races. And events like calf roping or steer wrestling undeniably cause tremendous pain and suffering, and often painful injuries, and sometimes death, to animals. Under Alberta's animal protection laws, it's illegal to cause an animal distress. So what we're doing, for example, at the Calgary Stampede, is we're asking the Humane Society of Calgary, which enforces those animal protection laws, we're asking them to lay charges against the Calgary Stampede for conduct that's arguably illegal. So we want to see law enforcement agencies really taking their jobs seriously and uh, laying charges when appropriate against animal abusers.
1: So do you find that certain animals have more, more weight than others? Like, for instance, I mean, we live in a dog and cat society. So cows and calves and horses are considered more commodities in in our global worldview, unfortunately. So I'm just wondering if uh, you know, I mean the Calgary Stampede, there there are two things that I think that that are real blights in Canada. There's the Calgary Stampede and the the seal slaughter. It's not a friggin' hunt, it's a slaughter. It's it's brutality at its worst. And these old, old, old world views are perpetuated under the guise of tradition and so I'm just wondering if with this old really stuck in the mud mentality of tradition if that's what's making it more difficult to enforce laws for animals that are normally commoditized for for food or for I don't know what horses are like work I guess. People seem to have more of a, like I'm talking from a cultural perspective, people seem to have more of a soft spot for dogs and cats, yet they seem to blindly accept the cruelty of something like the Calgary Stampede over and over and over again, even though there are always horrific injuries and always deaths every single year. It's like without fail, there are always deaths, especially with the chuck wagon races. And so... Uh do you find that that is one of the one of the difficulties like enforcing these laws is the resistance because of the species? Yeah,
0: that that definitely plays a role. Uh, I think that law enforcement agencies are often much more reluctant to go out on the limb and enforce the law when it comes to especially farmed animals. Now, we use and abuse over 700 million animals for food every year. And there are very powerful economic interests that profit from their exploitation and from their killing and and their suffering. So I think that's part of the explanation behind why we're so reticent to enforce those laws as as enforcement agencies. Um, There's some recent uh, issues arising in B.C. that kind of draw this really stark contrast. So on the one hand, we've seen a couple recent puppy mill busts in, in B.C., And the authorities act swift, they act decisively, they get warrants, they go in there, they seize dogs, and they lay charges. There have been two of them just in the last couple of weeks in British Columbia. And then we we can contrast this with another case in Chilliwack, British Columbia, the case of Chilliwack cattle sales. In June of 2014, uh, a group called Mercy for Animals went uh, undercover with hidden cameras into that facility, and a worker there uh, who was gathering footage Uh, captured horrible, horrible images of horrific animal abuse. Dairy cows were being beaten, they were being hit with metal pipes, uh, they were being moved with forklifts, they were being kicked and punched, and of course they were also suffering from painful, festering wounds and uh, a variety of other unfortunate conditions. The British Columbia SPCA recommended charges very quickly against both the workers involved in this abuse as well as the corporation which was letting this happen. But now we're, you know, we're, let's see, over 18 months later at this point, close to 20 months later, and nothing has happened. Charges have not been laid. Uh, The issue was in the news again in early February when some groups were calling on the Crown attorneys who are responsible for laying charges in this case and saying, this is getting absurd. Where are the charges? What's your decision? Um, So we may have news on that soon, but it really, really... Uh, puts into stark relief the contrast between how seriously enforcement agencies take companion animals versus the animals we use as food, who of course are every bit as sentient and as deserving as uh, for as prote- of protections as the cats and dogs that we know and love.
1: So yeah, it always comes down to the same thing, which I talk about a lot on this show. It's a consciousness issue. It's like we've we've been indoctrinated into. A separation-based worldview where, where our our psyche has actually been fragmented in ways where some things are acceptable and some things are not. Some species are acceptable, some are not. You know, some are food, some are some are companion animals, and it's it it's like all of these isms, whether it's speciesism or racism or sexism. All of these isms or obias, even like even the 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 phobias that we have are related to these fragmented splits that we've culturally normalized in our, in our society. I mean, I don't want to get into the whole psychological aspect of it, but really ultimately it comes down to a consciousness issue and educating people to start thinking critically again, you know, because that's what we're just so dumbed down in our society. All of the systems put into place dumb us down and oppress us. So there's I'm on my soapbox right now (laughs) because consciousness is something that's so huge for me I just want to wake people up and just remind them because I know that I know like I really believe in my heart that everybody in their heart already knows what is right and what is wrong it's just that we're conditioned to think rather than feel and if we allowed ourselves to feel none of this stuff would happen, but we live in a pain-phobic culture, so that makes it that much more difficult.
0: Yeah, you're right, you're right, and I think one of the sort of the beautiful things and the exciting things for me right now is that I think more and more people are opening their eyes and they're seeing what's going on, uh, and they're saying that they really do care. Uh, the, you know, the cattle case I just mentioned, the dairy cow case in British Columbia it's not that people don't care about that case. There, there was outrage when that footage came out. It made the national news right across the country. People were demanding charges. I think that society is, is more compassionate than our officials and law enforcement lets on or wants to acknowledge. But, you know, it's, it's about organization. It's about making your views known. It's about telling people that it's not acceptable that we allow animal abuse to go unchecked
1: speaking out exactly using our voices and i think that that's another thing that is is so uh, it's so challenging in our society is we always feel like somebody else is going to do the work somebody else is going to speak up somebody else is but you know what every single one of us is that somebody else and and uh, you know that's one thing that i really want to always encourage on every show if i can in one way is like somebody else is not going to do it you're the somebody else now you as a somebody else you have been I'm going to back up now here. You have been, uh, well, let me back it up even more. I know you as a beautiful soul and a shining light for animals. And we've known each other well since we both lived in Ottawa, which is quite a while ago now. And I also know you as someone who has a really fiercely passionate side that doesn't let up regarding society's treatment of animals. So I'm curious to just kind of, back things up and explore a little bit more about what makes Camille Labchuk tick. So let's talk about how you've gotten to where you are today. So what life was like when you were growing up in Eastern Canada and you were growing up near the near the seal slaughter, right?
0: That's right. And in fact, the seal slaughter is one of my first early memories of caring about animals. I remember very clearly being about eight or nine years old and seeing images of seals being clubbed on TV and thinking, how can that be allowed? Why are we doing this? And it really, it really stayed with me. So you know, I always had cats and hamsters and rabbits and companion animals growing up, and I I cared about them. Uh, Around the time I was 12, my mom and I watched a documentary on the CBC about animals being treated terribly. I believe it was animals in China, maybe not even food animals. It might have been bears, but something in that that program triggered in us the desire to go vegetarian immediately. So we both stopped eating meat on the spot. Uh, I was really lucky that I had a parent willing to do that with me because I know a lot of teenagers when they make that decision, as, as so many of us do in our teenage years, they find it difficult to, to eat food at home. Uh, but for me, it was was very easy. I had a supportive mom who took that step as well. Uh, my mom was also an environmental activist when I was growing up. So I guess it's fair to say I had a pretty good activist role model. I have um, very early memories of going with her to anti-pesticide activism meetings and and sitting down with government officials. Um, And she was, you know, happy to be a single mom and drag her kids along to those uh, types of, of meetings. And it was the best training I could have asked for. So I, you know, in high school, I kind of got distracted by, you know, social life and boys and other issues and kind of, you know, wasn't doing much about animals or thinking about them much for a long time. But that changed after university. I did an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I thought I would become a clinical neuropsychologist, which seemed like a very fun idea at the time. But, (laughs) you know, looking back, I'm not sure how my uh, sort of activism and political beliefs really lined up with it. But uh, but I decided to defer my acceptance to a, a grad program in that field for a year. And in the meantime, I started working on Elizabeth May's leadership campaign for the Green Party of Canada. And that was a pretty seminal experience in my life. I had actually run for the Green Party for Parliament a few months prior to that. And when Elizabeth announced, she was running for leadership, I got on board and started volunteering right away. And when she needed to hire a staff person, I was lucky enough to be that staff person. So... I helped her on the campaign and she became the leader of the party, luckily. And she hired me pretty quickly as her press secretary in, uh, in Ottawa. So I was thrown right away into the political realm in Ottawa and um, I haven't looked back uh, since. So it was through working for Elizabeth actually that I sort of developed my, my path and, and realized I was going to end up in the legal field. She's an environmental lawyer, and I saw every single day working for her how she used her law degree to analyze new legislation that was coming out, um, comment on the issues of the day, come up with new approaches to to issues that others had potentially missed. And I was getting more and more passionate about animal issues again around that same time. Uh, I was asked to go to the seal hunt on the East Coast. It, w- it was convenient that I was from PEI because the organizations that go out and film the seal hunt every year and broadcast those images to the world so that people can see what goes on, they tend to base their operations out of PEI for at least part of the seal hunt season. So they asked me to join them the one year, I think it was in 2007, uh, and I helped out with that campaign. I helped out uh, with logistics to get people out to the ice floes, And that it was sort of the moment where everything crystallized, and I realized I wanted to do animal activism full-time as a career, and, you know, seeing how the, the legal field looked like a potential option, I decided to go to law school and become an animal rights lawyer.
1: And here you are. Here I am. <laughs> so what was your experience like when you, were, when you were actually at the seal hunt? Did you, did you actually physically witness what was actually going on?
0: Yeah, so I was out there for three years, three seasons. Uh, The sealing season lasts usually from the late March until the end of April, or or sometimes even later. So I went with Humane Society International Canada for three years. Uh, The first two years, I used my vacation time uh, away from my job as Green Party press secretary. And the last year, I actually ended up Um, joining Humane Society full time, leaving the Green Party and and becoming a public relations specialist with the Humane Society International. So that was, um, it it was a good experience. Um, Yes, I did get out on the ice floes in Zodiac boats in helicopters and helped film and photograph the seal hunt. So I I did witness seals being clubbed. Um, it's, It's very difficult to see. But at the same time, when you're out there, you know that the most important thing is not to be distracted by the cruelty, but to get your job done. You have to take those photos. You have to get that footage because the world is depending on you. Um, the only way that people can see what's going on is for those advocates on the ice floes to be the world's eyes and ears. So uh, you know, it's, it's difficult, but at the same time, knowing that, you're having a, knowing that you're part of an important mission and that you're doing that critical work makes all the difference.
1: You know, it just seems—it seems like a time warp that we're even still talking about this. But I know that it's still going on, and I know that—I mean, I have listeners all around the world who are probably, to some degree, maybe familiar with this, but maybe not to the extent that uh, we in Canada. Well, not even all of us in Canada, though, because it's quite—it's you know—it's—it seems to be it's not getting as much press as it used to. And I know that there's been a lot of changes with the hunt, especially with climate change. It's not as easy to find the seals. Um, I think that there's, and there also, it seems to be that there aren't as many people going out there doing the slaughtering, but I'm curious, you know, what your experience is because I mean, you're right in it. What your experience is with the evolution of this, this seal slaughter, what your thoughts are as somebody who's been out there and, you know, you've borne witness to it firsthand and what your thoughts are now in 2016, because you were there in 2007, you said. And so what is, what are your thoughts now? Because I know again, you know, with the climate change issue and with not as many people going out doing the slaughtering. And then I know that there's been a lot of talk about, government payouts um, and I'm wondering if you could just explain a little bit about that or buyouts buy, buying out sealing license or so, something like that I mean you can explain this a lot better than me but yeah let's just let's dive into this a little bit more because this is something that I've been very passionate about practically all of my life and I would love to see it end in my lifetime
0: I think a lot of Canadians feel that way you mentioned earlier that it was sort of a defining animal welfare issue for a lot of people and it's frankly something that's given Canada a black eye on the international stage. Um, Encouragingly, there's been a lot of progress made in recent years. So I was last out there in 2009. Uh, That was the year that the European Union passed a resolution to ban the importation of SEAL products. And that was a tremendous, tremendous victory for SEALs. Uh, The European Union's borders now are closed to those products. And that shut off a huge marketplace. And it's not just the European Union, there's countries around the world who've taken the step of of banning seal imports. So the borders everywhere in the planet are slowly closing. Uh, And what we've seen as a result of decreased markets is that seal pelt prices have dropped dramatically. There aren't places to sell them. Uh, Oftentimes, not all the pelts uh, from the animals killed in a single year will even be sold, and so they'll be stockpiled in warehouses. And that will depress the price of of pelts in future years even further. So what we're seeing right now is really a huge decline in the global market for seal products, thanks to all these countries whose citizens have asked them to close their border to these cruel products. Uh, The reason that they're so keen to do that is because it's inherently cruel to kill seals in the commercial seal hunt. Having been out there, I can speak to the conditions that the sealers are forced to work under. And, you know, what we're looking at is an an area that's really the size of France in which the seal hunt can be conducted, very difficult to enforce or monitor sealing activities. We've got terrible weather conditions. There might be driving sleet and snow, shifting ice flows that sealers are either walking on to club seals or they're in boats and they're um, coming near seals to attempt to shoot them in these terrible weather conditions. So you can see how it would be very difficult for a sealer to uh, quickly or accurately kill an animal, either with a club or a -a hack-a-pick. And of course the conditions are terrible for workers as well. Every year there there are people out there who who do this type of work and uh, they face serious injuries, unfortunately sometimes even death. So it's inhumane for the animals, it's dangerous for workers, and it contributes such a small uh, amount of money now to the Canadian economy. With the decline in pelt prices, what we're seeing is that it's bringing in less revenue than it costs to police and enforce the hunt. You know, the, the Coast Guard will send out icebreakers to break the path to, to seals for, for boats. Um, that's in years when there actually is ice, as you mentioned. As of late, there's been a serious lack of ice in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which is very worrying uh, you know, for climate change reasons. As an ice-dependent species, uh, seals give birth to pups on the ice. And in years when there is no ice, there are very high rates of seal pep mortality. So, you know, for all of these reasons, the seal hunt industry is, is on the decline. Fewer and fewer people are engaging in it every year. Fewer and fewer seals are being killed. And I think one of the reasons that we're seeing less publicity being given to the seal hunt is that because it's, it's on the decline in this way. So that brings us to what do we do next? One thing that anti-sealing groups have been asking for is uh, for an end to federal subsidies to the seal hunt. So instead of paying millions and millions of dollars a year to operate this hunt, why don't we give that money to the fishermen who conduct this bloody business and uh, buy out their sealing licenses and help them transition to uh, the humane economy? So what's really encouraging is that even now, um, seal hunts... sorry. Seal watching tours where tourists are taken out to the ice flows to meet these incredible baby seals. Um, I've been out there and I can tell you it's one of the best experiences I've had in my life. It's incredible. They're uh, they're amazing, amazing animals. And people will pay good money to see that and to have that incredible experience. So there's no reason that we can't help these sealers transition into uh, seal watching tours instead of seal killing expeditions. It's better for the seals. It's better for workers. It's better for taxpayers as well.
1: So, what do you think it is that keeps it going, despite all of the opposition and all of the the crumbling markets?
0: Well, there, there are regional concerns. I think sealing is tied in with the Newfoundland identity, which is where a lot of sealers live. But you know, despite those concerns, it's it, we're also seeing a generational shift happen. I, w- I would venture to say, I think that fewer younger people now are interested in sealing and have ever been sealing. Uh, you know, leaving aside the fact that very few people engage in the practice in the first place, even if it doesn't form part of their national identity uh, or their, their provincial identity, I guess I should say, they, there are fewer people out there who engage in the practice and who identify with it strongly. So we also see people from within the industry supporting the idea of a buyout. So I don't think it's unrealistic to, to think that within our lifetime, we could see this buyout, which would help give sealers money for money for transition um, you know, obviously prevent the needless killing of, of seals and protect their populations as ice flows decline. Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, it's some, good, I, it's some cautious good news, I think. We're, we're on the right trajectory with the seal hunt.
1: It's kind of crazy, though, uh, when we still had Harper in, in the government, which again seems like a time warp, even talking about it, the crazy numbers that were always allocated every year for seal kills the the fisheries minister was always allocating like you can kill like what is it like half a million seals 400,000 it's so yeah, ridiculous or more. numbers <laughs> ridiculous numbers so yeah there is uh, uh it seems like the the government is really the the primary instigator or perpetuator of this this slaughter even though you know it is part of identity uh would it even would it even continue if the government just pulled the plug?
0: I don't see how it could. i don't I don't see how it could. It, it really does thrive on subsidies. Uh, we're paying a lot more for people to be able to engage in the sale hunt than the sale hunt brings in now or has for many years. So I think we're getting to the point where it just doesn't make sense anymore for any reason. Yeah,
1: exactly. Too bad we can't just uh, well, I suppose we probably could. I was gonna say just boycott paying our taxes. I don't want to pay my taxes towards <laughs> <laughs> to fund that. <laughs> that would I'm run not in- sure that's going to work yeah, out so well. well but- <laughs> run into a few problems there. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious now, you've got a, um, a number of really strong campaigns that you've been running with animal justice. And I know that there's a powerful billboard campaign that's running right now. And I just got your e- email newsletter this past Sunday. And I was like, wow, it is it seems like it's really opening up hearts and minds. And I'd love to to chat about that campaign and some of the other stuff that you guys are working on.
0: Yeah, so the billboard campaign is really exciting to me and the the whole team at Animal Justice as well. Uh, We put up a series of billboards in late January. There's four different designs, uh, one focused on fur, one focused on entertainment, one on food, um, and one on experimentation on animals. And what their goal is, is to get people to think critically about uh, how we treat animals and how we think we should treat animals. So in one ad, the coyote ad involving fur, there's a picture of a person wearing a coyote fur-trimmed jacket hood, uh, just like Canada Goose or Moose Knuckles, the brands that we unfortunately see all over people in, in major cities right now. And it's contrasted with the image right next to it. Of a coyote with her trap caught in a leg hold with her sorry, her paw caught in a leg hold trap, which is a cruel device that is used to trap coyotes in Canada. Uh, these devices are incredibly painful for animals. They clamp down on the animal's paw. They immobilize the coyote, they hold her there for sometimes days at a time before the trapper might return to check the trap. Uh, during that time she's subjected to the elements. You know, we have freezing cold winters here, obviously. Uh, to hunger, thirst, predation, perhaps painful injuries caused by the trap, including um, broken skin, broken bones, hemorrhaging. So there, there's no contest that they're incredibly cruel devices. And so what we're encouraging people to think about is, is that image of a coyote with her paw trapped in the trap, is that worth the fur trim on your Canada Goose jacket? And I think what a lot of people are, are you know, coming to realize through the ads is that maybe it's not. Maybe there are humane alternatives like faux fur or, or no fur that we can use instead. And the other ads are uh, along the same lines. The ad, that A lot of people are telling us they, they find the food ad quite powerful. It uh, contrasts an image of a bacon sandwich with an image of uh, a small pig who's just beginning her life in the factory farm system. Um, she's just a piglet. Uh, she doesn't look very happy and she's not going to have a very happy life. And people have, have told us that they find that ad very compelling as well. And you know even people who don't identify as vegetarian or vegan are rethinking what it means to be eating animals for food. So we're really excited about the impact that the ads have had. We've got 68 billboards running in uh, Toronto and Vancouver, and one just going up this week in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. And people from across the country have been reaching out And saying that they're hoping to put the billboards up in their cities as well. So it really is becoming a a cross-country campaign. Uh, And if you're listening to the podcast and you want to check out these images, you can check out animalcharter.ca, where you can also find uh, a really exciting video we just did. It documents people's reactions, just regular people on the street uh, who are interviewed after they see these ads. And they have a lot of really compelling inspiring, and inspiring things to say about how they make them feel.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's what I was. I was quite inspired when I watched that video to hear what people were saying. And it was very, it was quite, I'd have to say, what is the word? I don't know. It just gave me a, a kind of a jolt of hope that you have with that campaign. You're not really, you're not telling people what to do or how to be. All you're doing is you're showing contrasting images and well, actually, they're not even contrasting their images. Like a one, one leads to another. What they're doing is they're inspiring critical thought. And that's something that I mentioned earlier has kind of gone the way of the dodo because of this, this, the institutions that perpetuate our, our ignorance in this culture. So what you've done is you've just, you're shining a light on a dark area and allowing people to choose for themselves. And that's empowering.
0: Yeah, we're trying to inspire people just to think critically about their actions and when appropriate, make the connection. And everyday people you know, can see how their actions might be causing harm that they don't intend or they w- don't want to incur to animals. So, yeah, I, I do think there's something powerful about not telling people you should do this, you should do that, but just giving them the information and empowering them to decide.
1: Exactly. Now I know you've got so many other campaigns that you're running. I was looking at uh, looking at your website just before this call. You've got uh, there was shark finning and puppy mills and there's so many other things. And uh, I'm curious if you could just share some of the other campaigns, the bigger campaigns that you're working on.
0: Sure. so there's a couple that I'm proud of recently. I mean I'm proud of everything, <laughs> but a couple standouts recently. In November, we made history by intervening in a Supreme Court of Canada case. So, that's the the country's top court. And as an organization, we're still pretty young, and it was our very first time intervening at any level of court. So, it was simply amazing that the Supreme Court agreed to hear from us. Um, The case, unfortunately, I I won't get into the details too much. You can find more information at animaljustice.ca if you want. But it was a bestiality case, and there was an attempt to narrow the offense of bestiality so that some forms of sexual abuse of animals would no longer be illegal. And we got in there. We intervened, and we argued before the court, uh, and we fought that very hard. We're still awaiting the decision on that case, but we do expect the Supreme Court will rule sometime soon. So that was a that was a really big one. It was very legitimizing for us, and uh, I think in the eyes of any future attempt to intervene, that the Supreme Court has recognized us. Uh, another thing that we recently worked on and, and had a bit of a victory is in Ontario, the. Human Rights Commission recently recognized that uh, the word creed, which is a protection under human rights law, um, it's, it's traditionally thought of as religion, but the Human Rights Commission said that it thinks creed should also include secular beliefs, so that instead of just protecting somebody who has religious beliefs, it would include somebody with a secular belief system as well. Now, the reason this is important to us and to animals is because the secular belief Belief could include a belief or ethic about the way we treat animals, like ethical veganism. So we now argue that ethical vegans are afforded human rights protection in Ontario. Um, there, there's still a few more steps to, to go through before this becomes a firm thing. There would have to be a formal legal case brought. But I think it's really important recognition of the fact that uh, secular beliefs, like ethical veganism, deserve respect. And of course, the reason this is important is because we uh, kill and abuse 700 million animals just for food alone every year in Canada. So anytime a person takes a stand against that and wants to opt out of that industry, we think it's important that they have the right to do so and that they not be put into situations where they're forced uh, to make choices they don't want to, like you know, dissecting uh, an animal in a biology class or wearing a uniform that might have fur or leather on it. So, that was a really huge victory, and it's uh, gotten a lot of media attention. Um, and finally, a case that has really just risen up in the last week that I've been working on is the case of 21 dogs, allegedly pit bulls, who were seized from a dog fighting ring, allegedly, in Ontario last uh, October. So, really tragic story. The charges are before the court, and I understand they're being fought. But in the meantime, the Ontario SPCA, which is the law enforcement agency here, which is tasked with protecting animals, is actually applying to the court for an order to put the dogs down. So it wants to execute these 21 dogs. Um, we're, we're surprised by this. Uh, you, one would think that a body with the statutory obligation to protect animals wouldn't be seeking their deaths. So we're considering intervening in that case to uh, do whatever we can to stop these pit bulls from being put down by the court. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's important. These are the victims of an alleged dogfighting ring, and for no other offense in uh, human history have we, put, have we killed the victims of a crime. Mm.
1: So you really have your work cut out for you. <laughs> making, making changes with out-of-the-box thinking within a, a very old box, which is what I mentioned earlier. That's that's a challenge. So I'm curious, you know, what I guess on this on this same line of thought, this same train of thought, what kind of challenge are you typically up against because you have such out-of-the-box thinking and you're working within a very old, rigid system?
0: Yeah, so the legal system, very slow, very cumbersome to make change and i think it's fair to say that law doesn't lead society society leads the law mm. so just to unpack that a little bit the law doesn't come first society decides it's at a certain place in time and has certain values and beliefs and the law tends to come after that and catch up to where people already are so i don't i don't look at the law as a you know you know as the as the as the key or the big solution to all of our problems but i think In a society where people do care about animals, and make no mistake, Canadians, people around the world, we care about animals. It's our political and legal institutions that haven't caught up to what we feel about animals yet. I think that there's tremendous opportunity for groups like Animal Justice and so many others in Canada and globally that are doing amazing work. I think there's a credible opportunity for us to start pushing our institutions, the political institutions, our legal institutions, in the direction that Canadians want to see them go. So that's uh, one thing we try to do. But but you're right, it, it comes with huge challenges. Animals don't have legal rights, per se. We're standing under Canadian law at this point. So we have to get very creative and and think outside the box and and sometimes try to use interesting human rights to end up protecting animals in the end, which is kind of you could say that the ethical veganism protections fall under that type of um, effort. We're using a human right eventually in the end as a goal to protect animals. Um, Another example of a time we've done this is in consumer protection complaints. So under Canadian law, it's an offense to mislead consumers if you're selling a product about that product. That means when it comes to animals, you couldn't claim that something is treated humanely, that the product is produced humanely, whether it be fur or uh, meat, if the animals actually suffer. So we filed false advertising complaints now against uh, Canada Goose, which of course uses coyote fur trim on its jackets. And I've already explained why leg hold traps that catch coyotes are incredibly cruel. We filed a complaint against them and asked the Competition Bureau to investigate and lay charges, if appropriate, for misleading consumers into, and into thinking that fur is humane when it's demonstrably not. We also filed a complaint against uh, Maple Lodge Farms, which is a chicken slaughterer, the, the largest one in Canada. And despite an undercover investigation exposing horrific cruelty and suffering at its facility, its website still, com- still claims that it has very high humane standards. So in our view, that's an incredible, just galling attempt to mislead consumers who want to be conscious and want to make good choices into buying products that are cruel.
1: So you're really you're, you're tackling these issues in very creative ways. Yeah. That's what it seems like to me, which is awesome. We're really forced to do it, yeah. It's their only <laughs> option. So, <laughs> but it's fun. Because the biggest monster of all, really, is as far as I'm concerned, are, are farmed animals. As you mentioned, what is it, seven hundred million? Oh my god, seven hundred million, million every just, year, just just in Canada, and it just in Canada,
0: and that doesn't even include fishes. Oh,
1: so the the numbers are absurd. They're absurd, and when you when you uh, when you think about it globally, it turns into billions, and then when you include aquatic beings, it's trillions. We can't even fathom those numbers. So you're up against a big monster, but I'm really glad it's you. Because <laughs> I know if anybody can do it, you can. Because <laughs> oh, uh, really uh, and you're and you're showing it through through this creativity. I'm curious if you can just if there's any other um, interesting advances that you've made for farmed animals, or if you've got anything up your sleeve that you can share?
0: Well, let me let me say, talk about one thing that I think has been really tremendous for farmed animals in Canada, and that I'm very excited about uh, seeing continue into the future, and that's undercover investigations into factory farms. So I used to be a board member of Mercy for Animals and a number of animal justice uh, key team members, including Anna Pippis and Kimberly Carroll, uh, were also founding board members of MFA Canada. And we were really excited to be involved in those early efforts to document conditions inside factory farms. So uh, in those situations, a person would get a job in a facility, go to work wired with a hidden camera and record what he or she sees. And uh, really that investigator is acting as the eyes and the ears of all Canadians, because we're kept in the dark as to what goes on behind the closed doors of factory farms. And without investigators, like um, Mercy for Animals investigators and other organizations who do this work, we would never know how animals are being treated. Uh, And when people do know how how animals are being treated, that sometimes inspires legal action if, if there's illegalities, it inspires personal change, it inspires people to cut back or give up on meat or dairy or egg consumption. And hopefully it inspires eventually legal change as well, so that we get at some of the fundamental issues that allow uh, agricultural producers to treat animals so badly.
1: And I know in the U.S. they have these these ag-gag laws, and I feel like when when laws like that come up, uh, so... Essentially, you can probably flesh this out better than I can, but the ag-gag law is essentially just kind of, it's silencing these undercover investigators. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, there are different iterations of ag-gag laws, and every state has a slightly different type of law. Uh, there's a few states now that have them on the books in, in uh, the U.S., but usually they involve criminalizing undercover investigations, either through uh, preventing people from, putting in job applications if they work for an animal protection agency, um, sometimes requiring investigators to turn over film and report abuse immediately, which of course prevents them from getting any sort of long-term picture of what's going on um, and usually doesn't lead authorities to act anyway. So various ways that they attempt to criminalize this. In the U.S., I think the moment has come and gone for egg-gag legislation. I'm optimistic that uh, there was some momentum for a while, but that that's been halted and perhaps reversed at this point. uh, A court in Idaho recently struck that state's law down as unconstitutional and a stunning victory for animal advocates who challenged it. And there's pending litigation in other areas as well. So I'm optimistic that uh, egg-gag won't make its way north of the border. Certainly, if it did, in my view, it would be um, blatantly unconstitutional. We have, obviously, as they do in the States, which is the reason that one law was struck down, we have the rights to freedom of speech. And that includes gathering the information that you need to, to make that speech. So uh, I, I believe that we're unlikely to see it creep north of the border. But uh, I suspect that if it does make its way up here... People will be shocked and appalled just as they are in the States, and that it will be opposed by um, virtually every civil society group, animal protection groups, workers' rights groups, newspapers. There's a very broad coalition of people who say this is not who we are. <laughs> we should be putting the animal abusers in jails, not the whistleblowers.
1: <laughs> and I feel like when, when um, laws, which I say in quotation and air quotes, when laws like that emerge it's indicative of a high level of paranoia that, you know, I, it's, it's to me, actually, it, it goes even deeper than that. It's indicative of I'm doing something wrong and I need to hide this and I'm going to use as much power as I possibly can. But ultimately what it does is it, it exposes the absurdity of it on a, you know, on a, in a more public way. That's what the way I see it. And so I think that that's probably why it's, it's got so much opposition. And I can't see it coming over here either. I honestly can't. I think that in in many ways, in many ways, Canada is a little more progressive than, than that kind of mindset. <laughs> I think
0: we like to think we are sometimes yes, sometimes no. But
1: <laughs> I like to think that too. Well, I just have one more question for you, Camille. You know, you just seem so optimistic and hopeful and you're right there in the trenches and so my last question for you is since you've been in the trenches for so long in the political realm and now in the legal realm and you're working hands-on and you've actually witnessed you know like you, you mentioned the the seal hunt you've witnessed atrocities firsthand and yet you still have such optimism I can see it in your face here on Skype, you know, and I'm curious to know what your vision is as you move forward with this work.
0: I think we're at an amazing place in time right now in Canada to make real progress for animals. Um, I'm really excited about our work at Animal Justice, but other organizations are doing amazing uh, work as well. There's a lot of political effort going on at the time being. Uh, we have a new government in Ottawa, we, we no longer have the Conservatives, they were not interested in doing anything for animals for the decade that they, they held Parliament. So uh, we now have a new Liberal government and I'm really happy about a lot of the MPs that were elected in the last election. Uh, we supported uh, many of them through our initiative Humane Voters Canada and told them that we want to see action on animal issues. And there are so many enthusiastic, good people in the House of Commons and the Senate who want to see that type of work happen. So we've already got a bill to ban cosmetic testing on animals in the Senate. We've got one to criminalize keeping uh, cetaceans in captivity in Canada, which would shut down cruel marine parks. And I believe that we're set to see a wide-ranging, really progressive animal protection bill sometime soon in Parliament. So I'm really optimistic about work being done on the federal level. And in general, in terms of the field of animal law, I really think our moment is here. Law schools across the country are, are picking up on the excitement. They're offering animal law courses. We've got animal justice growing exponentially. We've got, uh, you know, a recent Supreme C- Court case under our belts and just so much excitement and momentum. And I really see that there's so much room to make progress on issues that just haven't been worked on over the years. So it can definitely be depressing at times. It's It can be Uh, difficult to know the extent of what we do to animals and still keep functioning. But I'm always sort sort of guided by this idea that if if I don't do it, maybe nobody else will. Uh, The animals are depending on us. And ultimately, what we have to do is just get down to work. And every time we have a victory or make any slight degree of progress, uh, that really bolsters my spirits. And it, you know, helps me see what's possible when we all work together. And and Canadians come together and demand better.
1: Camille, thank you so much for being such a voice for the voiceless and, and shining a light on the dark spaces of our human psyche that have been conditioned that way. But in our hearts, we know better. And I'm really grateful to, to be able to call you friend. And I'm even more grateful to have you on Team Compassion. So thank you so much for, for being with me today and sharing your, your voice and your work and your heart. I am really grateful to have you in my life. Well,
0: I am grateful for you, too. As you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, we've known each other for a long time. I'm thinking probably close to eight or nine years now, which is incredible. At least, and it's been yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, at least. It's been wonderful to watch your journey as well as you've transitioned into this beautiful role where you're reaching so many people.
1: If you're interested in exploring more about Camille's work through Animal Justice, you can check out animaljustice.ca, or you can head on back to debozarco.com backslash 98 for this week's show notes. And I invite you to contribute to the ongoing creation of this show through your support at patreon.com backslash podcast, or with an iTunes review, which is worth gold in the sea of podcasts that are coming up these days. And also tell your friends, spread the word and let's all work towards the creation of the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible for animals, for the earth and for ourselves. And also if you want more great resources, head on over to debozargo.com and sign up for inspiring monthly newsletters and offers that I share only with those in my email community. And that's it. The end of another Unplugged podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you for listening. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world.